Can we pray? Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, do you still our hearts and still our minds? Holy Spirit, speak to us. Renew and refresh us. Challenge us. And encourage us with your love, Holy Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's uh, so wonderful to be here with you. I think my ear has changed shape over the summer. My microphone keeps falling off, so... I don't have an itchy ear, if that's what you think is going on, I'm, it's just, don't want that to fall down. So, um, yeah, no, it, look, it's, it's good to be here. My name's Chris, um, if you've not met me before, I'm one of the ministers here, um, and uh, this morning we're going to um, look at what might rob us from living life to the fullest. Becky spoke about that last week, she talked about how God uh, wants us to live a life that is full, that is free, that steps into God's blessing, that steps into God's power and lives by faith, uh, and align ourselves with Jesus and His kingdom and all that that brings, uh, and that we would give God the glory as we do that as well. Um, and this is what actually we've been looking at over the last few weeks in our sermons, and we've sort of been advertising along those lines as well. Uh, what we've been preaching. And for the next few months, that's actually going to be an ongoing theme through our services. How do we live life to the fullest? What does it look like? What does the culture of God's kingdom look like when it is lived to the fullest? Um, We need to recognize the fact that Jesus came and lived uh, to give us this experience of a full and abundant life. And that's really important. And that comes straight from John chapter 10, verse 10 where Jesus says, I came that you might have life and life to the fullest, or uh, some translations say life in all its abundance. Uh, And quite simply, um, we get that when we put our hope and our trust in Jesus, when we respond and follow his teaching and align our lives with that. And this life that Jesus came to give us to the full isn't one that is good because of the experiences that we have, right? It's not a full life because our wallets are full, right? It's not a full life because it's free from sickness or poverty of one kind or the other. It is full because Jesus gives us a life that is free from the overarching fear of death and decay. Or to put it more positively, uh, Jesus gives us hope that this life full of chaos and disaster and sickness and uncertainty isn't all that there is right? The jobs, the relationships, the families, everything that we invest our lives into in this life matter and count for eternity. Eternity in a world that isn't full of chaos, isn't full of decay, and has no death. That is the hope that we share, and with that hope, we can live life to the fullest here and now, no matter what life throws our way, no matter where we go, no matter who we are. As Christians, we believe 
excuse me again, um, that Jesus has already given us this hope, right? He's already brought this into reality through his death and through his resurrection on the cross. And as Becky said last week, we can receive an abundance of God's blessing on our lives now, and we do. So many blessings, right? But we don't want to have what is known in theological terms as an overrealized eschatology, that we're, you know, we're already there. It's already happened. We can do anything as long as we have enough faith, right? We don't want that. that that's not real, right? Because we also need to acknowledge that we still fall short, don't we? Right? Despite God's blessing, despite God's power that He's poured out upon us through His Holy Spirit, we still live lives that are tainted with sin, right? We still turn back to that chaos and destruction that we perhaps knew too well at one time in our lives, and we bring that back into our relationships, our marriages, our families, our workplaces, our our thoughts and and our actions, right? And in our reading this morning from uh, John chapter, oh, sorry, 1 John 1, uh, John writes to the church saying, if we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. And we probably all know too well uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as we look at the idea of repentance this morning and the the concept of, of confession, in order to understand our need to repent and come to God in confession of our sin, we need to understand that we are all sinners. We're all sinners. Sin isn't just, though, defined as breaking the rules, right? Sometimes people go, oh, it's just, I don't break the rules, so I'm fine, right? But often, breaking the rules and the commandments of the Bible is this on the surface, right? It's the outworking of the root sin that's in our lives. The constant story of the Bible is that God's people are constantly struggling with sin that distorts and messes our relationship with God. See, sin is what gets between us and God. And when it does come in between us and God, it stifles our ability to truly live as men and women and communities, to, sorry, to live as the men and women and communities that God has called us to be. Because sin is really an attempt to take control of our lives by making something or someone or yourself the ultimate reality, by making something else your God and letting that thing, whatever it happens to be, whoever it happens to be, dictate your thoughts and your behavior. Money. What will you do for money? What does money tell you to do? What allegiance do you give to money? Power. Who will you use or who will you betray to get ahead or to feel more powerful in your life? Relationships. Uh, Have you ever been in or are you in perhaps a relationship where you serve, literally serve the other person or have minimized yourself and who you are in the disguise of love to make someone else happy? Do you worship someone else? What about the feeling of being loved? Have you ever given yourself, worked yourself to the bone to feel loved and appreciated or even just noticed? 
by someone else that might acknowledge you. That feeling of being loved can be an idol in our life that we serve and worship. Or status. Do you covet your neighbor's car or house or private school they send their kids to or the office your colleague has at work or the fancy toys your friends have because they offer status in the world's eyes? What are you serving? What is getting in between you and God? What is dethroning God from being king in your life? What are you putting in its place? What are you serving? What are you using for your salvation? Or is it self-salvation? Crazy living. Whatever feels good to me, whatever satisfies me, whatever feeds me, whatever gives me purpose and identity, I'm not serving anything. I'm free. Free to make myself feel good. You're really trying to save yourself and worship yourself. Because if you're not living your life with God as your ultimate reality and truth, you're serving something or someone else. And that's what the Bible defines as idol worship. Now, these might perhaps just be little things in your life. Maybe it's, it's nothing big or, or significant and it doesn't really matter that much. I can you know, sort out both of these things, I'll be right. There's no need for me really to repent. There's no need for me really to confess. It's not that much of a biggie. Okay, James, in the book of James, not our youth worker, the book of James, uh, and the Bible says, each person, when they are tempted, are lured and enticed by their own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Death particularly in that relationship with God. Death that lasts for eternity. But there's also another warning in the Bible that I want to mention here as we um, get going. And I think it's really important for us to heed as well. And that comes from Revelations chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through to 3. And uh, Jesus is dictating a letter to uh, the Apostle John uh, and he's writing a letter to the church in uh, a city known as Sardis. Uh, and he says to the church, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but the message is clear. Revelation is a book which calls for un, uh, uncontended allegiance to Jesus. To be living a really strong relationship with Jesus. And this is what this church looks like on the outside, this church in Sardis. It looks like they're, they're doing fantastic. It looks like they're super holy. It looks like they're really persevering. It looks like they're free from the sin of the world and they're not compromising at all. But Jesus says, I know that that's just on the outside. I know what's really happening on the inside. Because what you're showing on the outside doesn't match up with what you're actually doing in your church gatherings. It doesn't match up with how you live your lives every day. When I was doing uh, my school chaplaincy training, I worked as a chaplain in public schools uh, for a short while. 
um, we went around to um, a whole bunch of different schools. When we visited one school, uh, the chaplain there said one of the biggest problems that they had was children who would work from basically straight after school until 10 or 11 o'clock every night at, at Macca's or Subway or wherever they could get a job. Uh, and it wasn't for pocket money. It was to pay for food and bills because their parents had a big brand new house. They had a shiny BMW in the driveway. But when you opened the door, there was nothing in the house. Not a couch, not a bed, not a TV. When you opened the door, the house was empty. Life was a financial struggle despite what things looked like from the outside. And that's what a lot of people's lives can look like. Rich and abundant on the outside, but really struggling with sin on the inside. And the message is clear. Wake up. Hear the gospel. Repent. And so, that's where we're heading now. I know it's taken a while to get there, uh, but let's go. And look, there are two motivations to come uh, to God in humble repentance that we find in each of those two readings that we, um, we looked at today. But I thought at first it would be good to uh, get a little definition of what repentance means. Um, and you've probably heard this before, but uh, just in case you haven't, uh, repentance uh, is not just feeling sorry. It's not just changing one's mind. This is a quote from a new Bible dictionary. But it is a turning around, a complete alteration of the basic motivation and direction of one's life. This is why the best translation for repentance is often to convert, that is, to turn around completely. Repentance means acknowledging that one has no possible claim upon God and submitting oneself without excuse or attempted justification to God's mercy and grace. A complete turning away from the sin in our lives. And the two motivations we find in our readings is love and justice. Love and justice, or um, those are my sort of two headings, love and justice, or uh, repentance and confession. If we look at that uh, short parable in Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the sheep, Jesus says, beginning at verse 12, chapter 18, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, honestly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish or be lost." And Matthew chapter 18 is a chapter about discipleship, a chapter about what it means to follow God and how we have to be as innocent as children. And there's a, a woe to those who would make anyone slip away uh, from following Jesus, those who would cause Jesus' children, Jesus' disciples to sin. Um, and then he comes to, to this part here. If by chance one of my children, one of my disciples happens to sin, it is like this. This parable. And the image is clear. I think it's one that we're all quite familiar with, isn't it? Um, there's this, another one in Luke 15 that talks about uh, uh, someone who is converting, someone who's not a Christian uh, converting, and that's where they, they celebrate, the angels in heaven celebrate. This one is clearly in the context of a disciple who has backslidden into sin. And Jesus compares God with a shepherd who has lost one of their sheep. 
And the shepherd, uh, who by ancient Middle Eastern standards has a modest flock, finds that one of his sheep is missing, and out of care and concern for that sheep, leaves the other 99 on the hillside, and he goes out to look for him. And as the shepherd goes out, he knows there's one of three possible results. Well, firstly, he just never find the sheep. Secondly, he'll find the half-eaten remains of the sheep. Or maybe, one-third chance, maybe there'll be a good outcome and he'll find it. And so when he finds this sheep, he is overcome with joy. The sheep hasn't been lost. It hasn't been eaten. It is alive. And, that mo- and in that moment, his joy for that one sheep that has been found and returned to his flock is greater than that for the 99 who remained safe. And this is what God is like. When we turn away from him, he's sad. He notices that we're gone. He notices that we're missing. He feels the burden of a relationship slipping away because we don't come back to him. But also when we come back, God's joy and celebration over one sinner who repents, who comes back to him after going astray, is greater than those who aren't lost. Now that doesn't mean that over time, God's joy for us diminishes, right? God, you know, we don't come to believe and God's not kind of going, yeah, I'm familiar with you, I'm, I'm getting bored. And then you go away and he's like, oh, I love you again. Uh, that's not what it's talking about, right? For those of us who have ever, um, who've got, got children and you've ever lost them in a supermarket, you know the joy that comes when you find one of them. Well, not one of them, hopefully you've, you've got all of them. <laughs> We, um, we had a nightmare of a story where across the estuary there's a playground um, in Pakaranga and um, Beck had gone up the, up the beach with Scarlett and um, I was sat there dutifully supervising Aiden and Rue playing hide and seek in the flax bushes. Uh, ten minutes I hadn't seen Rue and Aiden had been looking for her um, and I was like, oh goodness, I better make sure I know where she is. Um, and I couldn't find her. And as I'm standing there looking, this lady comes walking past on the path and says, are you looking for a little girl? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, she's about that way. And so she was like, she's quite far. I saw her about 10 minutes ago. And I was like, <gasps> I left Aiden in the playground. Beck was miles up the other side. And I just ran. And um, 1.2 kilometers later, I found Rukia just huddled on the side of the path. She was only a few months older than two. Um, but I was going, on, and as I was going, I was, I was almost in tears because there's mangroves, there's water, um, there's little paths leading out into the mangroves, and what if she'd gone down there? And I'm just charging straight ahead. I couldn't find her, couldn't find her. People were offering us bikes to go and like ride after her. They could clearly see the panic. I was really unfit at the time, so I was having this asthma kind of attack. I was, looked like an absolute mess. But when I found her, the joy... Like the absolute love that just overflowed and joy that I'd found my beautiful little girl who was missing. I didn't berate or chastise or get angry at her. I just cuddled her because she was huddled on the side of the path. That's what God's like for us. Like that, like times a hundred, times a thousand is what God's love for us is like. And doesn't that blow out the, of the water, this idea that God's an angry father figure who just wants to tell you off and destroy your fun? On the contrary, it shows the image of a God who pursues you, who perseveres in searching for you and calling you back, even just one. 
God will actively pursue you because of the depth and care of concern that he has. And he'll celebrate when you come back to him. Celebrate when you repent of your sin. One of the biggest barriers to humility and coming back to God is the consequences we're afraid of. But clearly Jesus is saying that shouldn't be a problem. If you know the heart of God, the character of who he is, and the celebration that he has when you come back to him, my goodness, you'll come running at any opportunity you can. Do we celebrate when someone comes back to Christ? It's a question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Are we reflecting the image of God when someone who's not been to church for 18 months or so, and we know how they've been living, come back? Do we welcome them with open arms and say, praise God, you're back. Thank you so much. I'm so thankful you're here. Do we rejoice with them and then coming back to be a part of our family again? God celebrates. And that should be motivation for us to come to him day by day in repentance. The second passage, uh, 1 John uh, chapter 1, um, gives us a second reason for coming back to God. So that was, that was love, and I guess you could say joy. A second reason to come to God with our um, confession and repentance um, is justice. And justice in here is made up of two things, I think. Um, he has a twofold emphasis. The first one is on sin, and the second one is on Christ's sacrificial death. Right, John is writing to emphasize the good news of Jesus, right? And it might not sound like that, right? Because, but, but what he can't do is he can't say Jesus loves you, but you're great and perfect to start with. <laughs> like, in, in a sense, he did, Jesus didn't die on the cross just to keep you the same that you are because you're perfect as is, right? He comes and he says, he emphasizes, sorry, John cannot magnify just how glorious Christ's atoning death is until he's able to show us just how much we need it. Right? He cannot magnify Christ and his death and resurrection until we know how much we need it. And as we saw before in that reading, in the space of a few verses, John says, we have all sinned. He says, we delude ourselves if we haven't. He says, we call God a liar if we say that we have no sin. But then he goes on to emphasize the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we confess, God is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John knows that to truly step away from our sin... We must acknowledge it. We must confess it to God. And we must acknowledge just how severe it is. Just how much our thoughts and our lives are stained by sin and we're so enticed by the things of the world. But it's only when we do that that we can move forward to truly live a life of freedom. A freedom from sin, freedom from death. But we must come to God confessing our sin and dealing with it. A snake handler was once quoted as saying, it's more dangerous to release a snake after you've picked it up than it is to put it down because it'll turn around and bite you if you don't do it properly. The same is with our sin. If we don't deal with our sin properly, 
it'll turn around and bite us. It'll stay there. As James, uh, James chapter 1 said, it'll grow into something bigger, into sin, into death. But Christ has paid for it on the cross. So we can come, and we have an advocate with the Father. We have Jesus who stands there interceding between us and the Father, saying, not, he's done it one more time, Father. Can you please forgive him? He's, he's, I'm sorry, he's done it again. He said he wouldn't last time, but he's, you know, he's gone and done it again. Oh, he's, Chris has just, he's done it a fourth time and a fifth. I'm just going to wait till the end of the week, Father, so I can come back and advocate on Chris's behalf when he's got all his sin out of the way with. He doesn't do that. See, God is faithful and just, right? The price has been paid. Christ has paid the price. And so he doesn't stand there begging for our forgiveness. He stands before the Father demanding justice. I have paid for it. He is free. He is forgiven. He is mine. Jesus demands justice for your sin before the Father. On the cross, Jesus paid in full the price of our sin, past, present, and future. On the cross, God's holy and righteous wrath for our sin was satisfied fully. And now because, of our, because our debt is paid, because Christ's death took our place, our eternal death, and we are washed and cleansed by his blood, the price has been paid and he advocates for justice. One final word of hope. There is still hope to live life to the fullest. James again says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your face produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If we confess our sin to God, and we trust that he has dealt with it, and we stand firm in the power of the Spirit, and we seek God and lean into him and don't give in to the sin that is nipping at our heels, when we face trials with steadfastness, we can, we can step into that blessing that Becky spoke of last week. We can stand with steadfastness and let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is a promise of God. So let us stand steadfast in the love of Jesus Christ, running to our Father, knowing justice has been served, coming freely to confess, to repent, and to embrace life and life to the fullest. So what now then? How do we respond? two ways. As Becky mentioned earlier, Ash Wednesday is an opportunity to prepare ourselves for the Easter hope in a season of, Ash we uh, of repentance, of fasting, of prayer. We're going to uh, make that service all about that, but what we're also going to do throughout Lent is on every Wednesday have a, a Bible study, a time of extended prayer where we focus on these aspects of discipleship. 
where we can be accountable to one another, where we can grow in grace and discipleship and move forward together as a community truly seeking Jesus and what his will is for us in our lives. And so uh, can I commend that to you? There'll be a little bit more advertising going out this week and, and next week for that. But uh, the Ash Wednesday service on the 17th is uh, a beginning point for that. The second thing uh, that we are going, that we, second way in which we want you to respond or you have an opportunity to respond. Over the coming week, um, Becky and I have made ourselves available uh, tomorrow during the day and a couple of nights, Tuesday, Wednesday, during the evening, where you can schedule an appointment with us, where you can come and talk with us about the sin in your life. You can confess it to God with us. And the point of this isn't, I know people are going right there to the Catholic thing that you see in movies, Father, forgive me for I have sinned, and you know, two people in the boxes. Not what we're talking about at all, I promise. Like, this is an opportunity to be accountable for sin in your life that you're struggling with. Right? It's an opportunity to talk through the things that you're struggling with, to have someone to walk that journey with you, to pray with you, to touch base with you in the coming weeks and months and say, hey, how are you going? How are you doing? It's an opportunity to take more than just lip service to that repentance, but actually to step out and say, I want to deal with this. So there's a sheet out the back on the, uh, really the front, I guess, uh, the table in the foyer there uh, that has um, some days and some times, uh, and it's got little tear-off slips. If you want to have one of those times to come and talk with Becky and I and to have us pray with you uh, and... Um, and walk this journey together. Tear off one of those, text us straight away, or as, as soon as you can, let us know what time that you uh, have booked, um, and, and we just want to bless you in that way and, and walk with you and journey with you, uh, and, and so that we can do some real work with the Lord. Um, and I, I really encourage you to, to take that step uh, and take up this opportunity. As we music team comes up, can we pray? Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your grace. You are so good to us. You're so, so good. You've given us a life of freedom, a life of relationship with you, a life lived to the fullest. And God, we want to acknowledge those times where we've mucked up, where we've not stepped into your blessing and where we've turned away from the call of your spirit. We want to say that we're sorry. We want to come to you in repentance. We want to come to you confessing our sin and those times we've fallen short. Well, we want to make it right. So God, forgive us. We thank you, Lord, that you are both just and faithful. Just that you've paid the price faithful that you always will forgive. And so, Father, we run to you with open arms. We want to enjoy your joy and rejoicing as we come home to you and live with you, our mighty Father. So bless us today, bless us this week. In your name we pray. Amen.